Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, Toronto goalkeeper Clint Irwin talks about this week's MLS Cup Final, playing high school basketball with teammate Stephen Curry, and his remarkable career journey, including his decision in 2013 to turn down a full-time business job to try to make it in pro soccer. What it came down to was I just didn't want to have any regrets about how much I put into the game and to be able to look back and say, you know, I gave everything I had and if it didn't work out, I'd be comfortable with that. And at that point, I felt like I hadn't given everything that I could to make it work. All that and more coming up. This episode of Planet Football is brought to you by Mac Weldon. Guys, whatever you're wearing now, Mac Weldon is better. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. I just got some Mack Weldon boxer shorts, and I can honestly say they're the best boxers I've ever worn. And Mack Weldon wants you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you, no questions asked. They aren't just comfortable. Mack Weldon looks good and performs well, too. It's good for everyday life, going to work, going on dates, working out, recording podcasts. All their products are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. That's a good thing. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code PLANET. Easy shopping, great customer service, good-looking, super comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, and hoodies. MacWeldon.com, 20% off using the promo code PLANET. All right, on with the show. Toronto FC will meet Seattle in the 2016 MLS Cup Final this Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Big Fox. Our guest today is Toronto goalkeeper Clint Irwin. Thanks for joining me, Clint. Thanks for having me on, Grant. First off, congratulations on... On reaching the final, that was an absolutely wild game the other night with Toronto beating Montreal on a 7-5 to aggregate in the end. You guys were down 3 nothing at one point. What was it like to play in a series like that? It was, uh, it was crazy. The last game, especially the second leg, was, was probably the craziest game I've ever been a part of. Just the ups and downs. And, and even going back to the first leg, being down three goals so quickly... Um, at that point, you're thinking that you know this is this is a total disaster, and how are we going to get out of it? But to get two goals back on the road was huge for us, and then we knew that just the home crowd would kind of spur us on, and and we didn't get off to the greatest start in terms of getting the first goal, but we were able to pull it out in the end, and it was just a roller coaster the whole game because you're you're up one goal and you're up in the tie, and then they come back, and now you have to chase another goal, and there's just twist and turn every 10 minutes, it seems. So how do you sort of get back down to earth in advance of this final coming up when you've had such an emotional you know, roller coaster like you had in the semifinal? Well, it took a couple of days for sure. Uh, the day after, you're just trying to soak it all in. Uh, it seems like there's a really good buzz in the city and, and you're, you're reading what the reaction is and fans are hitting you on Twitter or other social media just telling you how happy they are, especially for a city like Toronto with um, the history of the team and, and history of sports here. But as we've, we've kind of gone throughout uh, the preparation for Seattle, it's kind of set, set in that it's another game and uh, we have another week to prepare and it, it makes things 
more like the rest of the season in that you you go in on the same days and you have about five days to prepare for your opponent and you play on a Saturday night and it's it kind of becomes uh, normal in that aspect. So what's the mood like in the city right now ahead of the final? Is there something appreciable that you can notice sort of in what's going on around town? Yeah, there definitely is. Um, just as an example, um, I live in, in like an apartment condo complex um, and a couple days after the game, I had a note on my door that just said, you know, we're proud of you, keep it up. Um, and it was from one of one of the neighbors uh, who live above me. And, and I'd seen them a couple times in the parking garage and we had talked a little bit earlier in the season. You know, I'd play for soccer for Toronto FC and um, that's just a cool little indicator of how much it means to the city. I don't think that those people are necessarily huge soccer fans, but uh, it's captured the interest of a lot of a lot of sports fans and a lot of people who just take pride in the city here. Well, Toronto, I've always thought of as this very international city. You came to Toronto this season from Colorado. In soccer terms, how different is the culture of Toronto compared to the soccer culture of Denver? It's a little bit different. Uh, I would say Denver is more uh, your traditional American soccer fan where there's a lot of families and maybe a little bit more suburban based where you have people who bring their kids to the game and their kids are playing soccer and they take an interest as parents because of that. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's all different types of fans. And, and of course, you have a good group of supporters with Centennial 38 uh, there. Um, but here in Toronto, I feel like it's there's a there's a soccer knowledge due to like you're talking about the the international cultures in the city uh, people who have grown up you know watching soccer uh with their favorite teams in Italy uh or South America or even in in England with a lot of the uh the Caribbean population here so there's a there's definitely a knowledge and and as players we've talked about before you know people cheer at the right time like if you make a if you make a good play they're appreciative of that. They're not just cheering when the ball goes out for a throw-in or a corner kick or, or whatever it is. They understand the game and they understand you know, who the good players are and, and who, uh, who's out there entertaining and, and making it fun to watch. So Toronto had always spent a lot of money on attacking players in recent years, but the big problem always seemed to be the defense. And this year they bring in you, Drew Moore, Steve Betashore, how did that process go, getting a team defense working together so quickly like that when there were so many of you there that were new? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, we all came from sort of all over to help in the defensive part of the field. And uh, it really started in preseason. We focused on a lot on our defensive shape. And we knew with our start of the season with eight games, eight or nine games on the road to start that we needed to be solid defensively. And so preseason, we harped on that. And uh, it just came down to a lot of guys who really are focused on preventing goals. And I know that sounds like simple. Like, of course, you're a defender. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. But there, it takes a real commitment and pride into keeping people from scoring. And I think the, a lot of those guys – uh, even you know, adding Justin Morrow, Eric Zavaleta, Nick Haglin, there's a real commitment to to keeping zeros. And I think back to the New York City game, you know, the second leg we're up five or six goals at that time, mm-hmm. and we're focusing in the last five minutes of the game. We have people pressing up the field um, and, and really taking a pride in keeping a zero. And and at that point, it didn't. There wasn't anything that mattered 
into keeping that zero, but it was a pride thing, and and we wanted to keep keep them off the score sheet through two legs because that's just the type of people that we have in this team. Your coaching staff includes three guys who were defenders on the early MLS LA Galaxy teams. You've got head coach Greg Vanny, Robin Frazier, one of his assistants, Dan Kalichman, another assistant. How would you describe those guys as coaches and how they approach things? Well, I think all of them have their own unique personalities and, and complement each other well. I think Greg Greg's pretty reserved and he's calm and he's able to look things look at things rationally. And I, I would say Robin is much the same way, whereas Dan's a little bit more fiery. He's, <laughs> he's vocal. He's he lets you know how he feels. He you know he's fist bumping you. He's hugging you. Like he's just kind of he's kind of the hype man there. But he, he also knows the game very well and. I think combined, you know, with their MLS experience and, and also Nick Teslov and John Conway, uh, these are all guys who have been in the league and they know what it takes to win in this country. And, um, you know, you can go back through the results that we've had this year. There's been some bad ones. I think back even the, the San Jose game where, where we lose against nine men. And a lot of coaches would probably panic and say, you know, this is the end of the world and I can't believe we lost this game. And, and for Greg, it was just, you know we're disappointed, but we got another game. It's one game in the scheme of 34, and we had to keep our eyes on on the bigger prize, which is first getting into the playoffs and then making it to MLS Cup. And I think he's done a great job in keeping us focused on on those larger goals throughout the season. Well, MLS is a weird league compared to a lot of the top European leagues in the sense that even the best teams lose a lot. And I've always sort of had this suspicion, kind of like what you're saying about that San Jose game, that one of the keys to succeeding in MLS is how to deal with losing as much as every team does. Is there something to that or not? I definitely think there is. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that you should get used to losing that much. I think you still need to have a competitive fire, but there is an aspect in which you could do everything well throughout the game. You execute your game plan, but you've flown... 3,000 miles across the country to play your third game in a week and you know you have players on the field who, who can't give any more and the referee gives away a bad decision or something fluky happens off a deflection and and that's just the league and, and you can't you try to explain that to other people who maybe don't play in MLS or from other countries and they don't understand it because they're used to the good teams losing four or five times in a year and and you know, wiping the floor with the rest of the other teams, but it just doesn't happen. I mean, if you win a third of your games in MLS, you probably have a good chance of going to the playoffs, not even half. Um, and it's, it's just a different animal. I don't know how, how else to explain it, but it's different. And I think the key for us has been the guys that we have on the team. They understand that and we don't get too up or too down based on the results that we have. Now, there's a couple of things I think about when I think about you as a player in the league. One, that you had this kind of crazy, very cool professional soccer story that you went through a lot just to get to MLS, much less be a starter on a team in, in the final. Uh, the other, that you're kind of a thinking man's player. So I want to get into some of this stuff as we talk here. You've done some writing over the years about a lot of things, including your own story. And I wanted to read something quick that you wrote on, I guess it was February 20th, 2011. So this is a, a ways back, but I found this interesting. You weren't in MLS yet. And you wrote, 
This is the first entry into my journal of the life of a free agent professional soccer player. I find it difficult even calling myself a professional soccer player at this stage because A, I'm technically not a professional, I don't get paid for what I'm doing right now, and B, my parents are still supporting my endeavors financially. I guess what I've settled on is, quote, unemployed professional, which is a title that would fit many in this downtrodden economy. That's good writing, my friend. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what sort of caused you to put into words what you were experiencing during that time? Well, a lot of it was just frustration. I didn't really have an outlet, and I think probably my parents or my coaches were probably tired of hearing me complain or, or whatever. <laughs> I was tired of hearing myself complain, and I just needed to put it down. Um, and, and also, you know, my college coach, Darren Powell, I talked with him a lot, you know, my first couple years as a pro and still do. And, and he would always say, you know, just another chapter in the book, mate. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, maybe one day I'll, I'll be able to write a book about all this. And maybe not. Maybe it'll, it won't work out and I'll be just another failed semi-professional soccer player. <laughs> um, but I, I thought just, you know, maybe I'll put something down in kind of a raw moment where I'm feeling either frustrated or, or just overlooked or, you know, just not feeling whatever situation I was in at that time. Um, and that's sort of where it came from. So back at that time in February of 2011, where were you in your soccer journey? And as far as I can tell, you had two part-time jobs at one point in addition to playing soccer. Um, can you tell the story a little bit about how you got from one point to the other? Yeah. So in February 2011 would have been just after I finished my college career. Uh, I graduated early in December 2010. And from that point, I got invited into New England Revolution's preseason camp. I didn't get drafted by any team. Mm -hmm. So in January 2011, into January, I went in for about two weeks of preseason with New England. Um, and I didn't, I didn't end up staying on. They released me after a couple weeks and uh, honestly deserved to be released. I, wasn't, I didn't play at the level that was needed at the time. Um, I was coming off an injury and I was just out of form. Um, and from there, I kind of bounced around different USL and NASL teams. I trained with the Carolina Railhawks at the time with, uh, when Martin Rennie was the coach. Mm -hmm. And I was, while I was there, I was there with them from like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I would drive up to Richmond to train with the Richmond Kickers huh. at the same time just to try to try to get in front of as many people as possible. And I did that for a couple of weeks and I was on my buddy's couch in Raleigh. And, uh, they, you know, they just said, you know, we don't really have a spot for you. And from there, I went to train with Charlotte Eagles, my hometown team. This mm -hmm. is my first, first stint. Uh, and they just said, you know, we don't really have any goalkeeper spots. Uh, I went up for an open combine with, Harrisburg City Islanders over a weekend, kind of in February that year. And then uh, from there, I had gotten an email a while back from Capital City FC in Ottawa mm -hmm. in the Canadian Soccer League. And I hadn't thought much of it, but at that point, I didn't really have any other options. And I thought, you know, if I want to keep playing, I just need, I need somewhere to play, most importantly. Mm -hmm. um, and so I called them back and I said, you know, we're still we're still interested. We're putting together a team. It's kind of an expansion franchise. And I didn't really know too much about it, but I was ready to sign on. And I signed on on my birthday on April 1st, 2011. 
for a $500 a month contract and $40 win bonus. Wow. And so, and so that, that's where I spent my 2011 season. Okay. And at what point did the multiple extra jobs come into play? So that was 2012. So at the end of 2011, left Capital City FC and basically repeated the same process over again. I, I trained with the Carolina Railhawks again, um, went to some open, open tryouts with Wilmington Hammerheads. And I think, I, I believe I went to, no, that was the next year, but uh, bounced around a few teams and didn't really get any offers again. And, and then Charlotte were said, you know, well, we can sign you as a third goalkeeper, which was, was a step up for me, you know, going from <laughs> Canadian Soccer League to USL. Uh-huh. I said, okay, well, at least I'm making a little bit of progress here. <laughs> and financially, I, I knew I could kind of make it work because I could live at home. Um, and I could coach and, and maybe get another job. So I signed on uh, with the Eagles for 2012, and I ended up working uh, at a startup. It was like a soccer and social media startup. Kind of pivoted a little bit when I was when I left, but I was working there. Kind of gotten in with a former teammate, and who knew the founders of the company. And so I started off as kind of a an unpaid intern, and then worked my way into a, a part time position. So I worked there in the afternoons and then was director of goalkeeping at Charlotte United Football Club, okay. which was the club I grew up in at, during the nights. That's pretty amazing uh, when you think about it, because one, your big break had not come yet. And two, it just, that's a ton of rejection to have to deal with, wasn't it? That was the hardest part about it is at least the first first year or so or, or first process that I went through with you know, New England and um, some of the other teams is just someone telling you either A, you're not good enough or B, we don't have a spot for you. And there's a, there's a difference and you kind of learn that as you go. The first part of being not good enough, that's the one that maybe hurts the most. But then you realize throughout some of the situations that it's more the second one in which you might be good enough, but we don't have a spot for you, mm. in which case they're Teams get further down the line. They've they've already got someone that they're close to signing, or they've already signed people before you've popped up on their radar. Um, and so you kind of you kind of can handle that because it's nothing that you can control. But the other one is is the one that really kind of jolts you and it tests you the most because if you're if you're not used to hearing that, which which many players aren't, if they've kind of progressed up, you know the soccer the soccer ladder, it can be a real setback. So was there a point, a specific point at which you basically almost quit the sport? Yeah, there definitely was. That was that was at the end of 2012. After the season with the Charlotte Eagles, the startup that I was working at, uh, Mac Lackey, who's the founder and, and uh, you know CEO, he came to me and said, we want to hire you full time because we think you're doing a good job and we think you have a lot of potential in this company and but a full-time job means you need to quit soccer. And uh, I kind of knew that was coming because I, I was sort of there in my own head as you know, I had played in, I believe it was seven games total with the, the Eagles. You know, mm. we, I played in four in the Open Cup where we had made a decent run into the quarterfinals um, and then three league games. And so you know, my career wasn't exactly going anywhere. It was, uh, the past years definitely looked greener on – on the business side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I considered it a lot and 
what it came down to was I just didn't want to have any regrets about how much I put into the game and to be able to look back and say, you know, I gave everything I had and if it didn't work out, I'd be comfortable with that. And at that point, I just, I felt like I hadn't given everything that I could to make it, to make it work. And so I quit my job with, with kick the company I was working at and mm. I didn't have to do that. It, they would have kept me on part time. Hmm. Um, and I quit my job coaching, um, and just went all, all in towards, towards trying to play. And, and I didn't have any leads or anything. I was just, I just wanted to train as hard as I could and, and see what happens. And how long was it before Colorado came up? Probably a couple months. Uh, I did the same thing again in January. I, I went to open tryout with Charleston Battery. I went to the NASL Combine down in uh, Tampa, and I hadn't heard anything. And then about a week before the MLS preseason started, I got a call from Chris Sharp, who was the assistant goalkeeper coach in Colorado. Who The head coach was Dave Durr. Sharp, Chris Sharp's now the head goalkeeper coach in Colorado. But um, they just called saying, hey, your name's popped up. You want to come in for preseason? We're going to bring in some goalkeepers. And... Basically, we'll see how long you last. And of course, I said yes right then. I didn't, didn't no hesitation. And and I went into preseason with Colorado, uh, with uh, three other goalkeepers fighting for one spot. It was myself, uh, Jimmy Maurer, and Joel Helmick. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up signing with Colorado about a week before the season started. And then you were playing a lot before too long. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was. That part was even more crazy. It was. Uh, my first game, or the first game for the club, the opener was in uh, was in Dallas, and I didn't make the trip with the team. I was on as the third, signed as a third goalkeeper, mm-hmm. uh, and we we ended up losing that game. Uh, it was kind of a fluke goal, and then the second game, I made the bench as a backup to Matt Pickens. He was injured in the first game, mm-hmm. but he was starting the second game. That game went by without any incident, and the third game was against Salt Lake in Salt Lake, uh, which is obviously you know rocky mountain cup rivalry big game and about 10 minutes in matt goes up with a goes up for a cross and one of the salt lake players headed his forearm and broke both bones in his forearm and uh Mm. about 12 minutes in i was subbed in and made my debut and played every minute after that (laughs) and and the rest is history as they say and you're in the final this weekend (laughs) that's an amazing story man (laughs) i know it's crazy that you know four or five years ago i was I was playing in some of these outer fields here in Toronto and to make it this far is you look back on it a lot and and just see how much hard work it took and how how tough it was you know my story is is unique and and I'm fully aware of that and I'm thankful for that but there's a lot of players who have done the same thing and it hasn't worked out and it's a combination of luck it's a combination of a lot of different things that can't be explained and I think about it a lot are you appreciably a better goalkeeper now than you were four years ago? Or were, did you always have that and it just wasn't being noticed? It's a little bit of both. I've, I feel like I've improved, certainly. Playing in MLS, you pick up different things. You pick up a lot playing with better players. Uh, and you have to react quicker. You have to anticipate more. And you have to be a better player. But at the time, I felt like I had the skills to be able to make an MLS roster. I don't think I was a, a number one goalkeeper coming out of college by any means, mm-hmm. but I felt like I had that ability. And 
you know, it, it's not like it wasn't identified. I mean, I, I got invited into New England Revolution's preseason right. based off of, you know, what I had done in college and what they had seen. Um, and, and I didn't perform in that aspect. So there's, there's a twofold thing, you know, you have to get the, you have to get the opportunity and then you have to take the opportunity. You don't just kind of walk your way in when you're on trial. Um, you've got to make an impact and people need to remember that you played well when you were there. When you were in high school, you went to school and played basketball with Stephen Curry at Charlotte yep. Christian. How often are you guys in touch? Do you have any good Steph Curry stories? <laughs> I do have some good stories. Yeah, we're actually, uh, they played here in Toronto probably about three or four weeks ago. And uh, we went went to, over to the hotel and had dinner with him and, and uh, some of the coaches that I'd met when we were in Denver. It was probably about a year ago this time we met in Denver. So we try to get together when our, our paths cross. It's uh, We both have schedules that there's a lot of traveling and the seasons don't don't match up all the time. But we try to stay in touch a little bit here and there, text uh, every once in a while. And he's just a really nice person. He's just a great guy. He hasn't changed much at all. Um, I'm sure you, you said you had done an interview with him. And he's probably the same guy that you interviewed uh, back when he was at Davidson. But I don't have too many too many stories. He's actually a pretty level-headed guy. But <laughs> I do remember in high school, and I tell this story a lot. We were we we're in the championship game of a holiday tournament, and uh, the game before us had kind of gone over. So we we're in the locker room, just milling around and and trying to stay engaged and keep the excitement levels down. And Steph comes out of one of the uh, the like the bathrooms in the locker room, and is between his eyes, he's got like this big gash, pretty deep. Um, between his eye and we're like you know what's going on what what do you do like we're just hanging out in the locker room and he's said that he was jumping up and down in the locker room stall because he was so excited and like so trying to get so hyped for the game that in the locker room stall there's these bars above it that kind of hold <laughs> the stalls up and he had banged his his forehead on the stall itself and so when we, when we went out for warm-ups, he, he couldn't go out for warm-ups because they were still trying to get the, the bleeding to stop. And, uh-huh. and we are like, what are we going to do? This, our best player has just inflicted this injury on himself right before our biggest game of the season. And, uh, <laughs> and so he still has that scar right between his eyes, so I always give him a hard time about it. How good were you, by the way? I was not that good. Um, <laughs> I, my career average, average was about 1.9 points per game. Um, and so I was kind of, I was a sixth man and my job was to come in and play defense and to set screens to get, get our guys open. Gotcha. Uh, we had a pretty good team though. We had seven players play division one. So as a, primarily as a soccer player, I was not at the level to, to really make an impact on that team, but I found a way to, to do it. Nice. Another thing I wanted to talk to you about was unlike a lot of other professional athletes, I feel like you speak your mind publicly uh, on a lot of different topics, you know, and uh, your Twitter feed is one of the more interesting ones that I follow among athletes. Uh, I know that you were doing a fair amount of tweeting during the election campaign, and, and some of it was really funny. I was just looking at a few here. Trump talks like a college game day sign was one of them. And then on election night, someone please light up the CN Tower red, white, and blue so we can raise awareness of America's impending doom. <laughs> and, I mean, it's it's both heartfelt and clearly with an opinion. And we had Jeff Cameron on 
uh, the podcast a few months ago, and he's a guy who tweets supporting the other side. So we, we give equal time here. <laughs> but I, I was just wondering, why do you think most athletes are unwilling to sort of speak their minds in this way? And, and why do you do it? And what kind of response do you get? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, guys are a little bit, I wouldn't say afraid, but it's, uh, there's certainly some, some pressure not to tweet about things that either one, you don't feel like you have a good grasp on the other, or the second part is is the one that people are going to get, that it's a divisive issue that you're going to get a lot of either negative feedback or, or people are just, they're going to be able to form an opinion about you that, that may not be true or the same opinion that you have of yourself. So I think guys are just trying to protect themselves. I mean, we have a lot of guys, we talk about this stuff all the time and it's, it's just a matter of what your private conversations are and, and whether you want to make those public or you want to want to say whatever it is that, that you think. And I really have no problem with it. And I, I feel like the feedback that I get is, you know, people disagree, but they do it in a respectful way. Um, and I think it is, as long as you engage your audience in a way that's respectful and, and appreciate what they're bringing and, you, and realize that you have an element of, hey, I could be wrong on this or mm-hmm. I don't feel completely certain, that people will respect what you say even if they don't agree with it. Are there other topics out there that you feel strongly about that maybe not every athlete will address publicly? Well, I, I feel like politics is probably the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, I studied, my concentration in college was political science and philosophy. And so I guess my background is one in which we discussed all of this stuff in class. You know, we, this was just normal. This was, this was discourse. And so mm-hmm. no one ever took what we, what we said to each other personally. Um, all, all arguments were decided on their merit and not necessarily what the level of volume or uh, who it was coming from. And that's just sort of the background that I come from. And, and that's what I wish Twitter was, but it's obviously not. Um, but it, it's what I, when I'm tweeting out, it's what I try to focus on is, is making something that's logical, that's, that enlightens some people in some way, or, or it's just appreciated. I'm not looking to provoke or anything like that. I just, I just hope other people are thinking about things and taking it all in. Who are one or two of your Toronto teammates that you've had the most interesting, thoughtful conversations about topics not related to sports? There's a lot. I think, you know, we have a a diverse group of guys. I mean, you know, Josie is a guy who's got a lot of things that he likes to talk about and very well-spoken, I think, and very thought out in, in a lot of his opinions. And, you know, whether he wants to share those with the press or the, the larger the larger population is up to him, but um, I respect a lot of things that he says. I think you know Michael Bradley's got an amazing perspective on on life for a guy who's basically been traveling around the world his whole life to play soccer. He's got uh, a lot of experiences to share, and you know you try to draw on those on those guys. And, and I always have interesting conversations with them because they think in things in in different ways that I do, and and that's what makes this sport so interesting to me is that you have teammates from all around the world. Even, uh, you know, Benoit Sheru is another guy uh, who played in France for a large part of his career and 
he views things a lot differently than we do here in America or North America. And that's one of the things I love about this game is this, you come across so many different people from different backgrounds and um, makeups that everyone's got something different to share. And, and a lot of times it's really interesting. Now you are the union rep for the Toronto team. You're also on the MLS Players Union Executive Board. And I think that makes sense, especially given your route to success in MLS and what you've gone through. How did you feel about the CBA that was reached last year where I know there were some players who thought it was great that some form of limited free agency was won. Uh, Other players were unhappy that the salary cap didn't go up as much as they thought it would. Where did you stand on all of that? It was my first CBA experience. Um, I wasn't on the executive board at the time. I was uh, one of the player reps for Colorado. And it's the CBA experience itself is one in which I was completely, I had no idea what to expect. Um, and the, the intensity of it, the pressure um, is all just very, very high. And I, I, I don't know if people can completely understand it unless they're, they're in those rooms. And I felt like as a players union, we did our best to, to represent the, the views of our players and of our locker rooms. And um, we came out with a deal that, that really moved the needle on a lot of issues. It wasn't perfect by any means. I don't, I don't think we could say that we got everything that we set out to do, but it moved things in the right direction. And there's still a lot of work to be done. And I, I think what, what we have to realize is that there's two sides who are who are bargaining, and neither side is going to say, "Yeah, of course you can have you can have exactly what you're asking for, and exactly how much you're asking for, and we'll we'll be happy to give that to you." That's mm-hmm. the whole reason that there's bargaining is that <laughs> there's disputes about about a lot of these issues, and so it's a lot more difficult and just frankly it's hard to to agree on these things and um i came away with a new appreciation of that and i feel a lot more prepared for for the next negotiation and hopefully we move the needle more and and represent our players even better than we did in the past in your opinion what are some of the big important things that the players should get in the future the most important things to you that you don't have right now I think we've made progress on a lot of the big issues. Getting the door open on free agency was was massive. And I think we continue to need to push and to open that up to more players, open the eligibility up to more players. And, you know, we expand expand the salary cap, um, expand guaranteed contracts. Uh, A lot of the the issues don't change too much for us. Um, We've certainly got a ways to push and, and a ways to go on a lot of them, but I don't foresee a lot of the issues being totally different from the last CBA. Okay. One thing I like to ask people, if you were commissioner for a day in MLS, what would you change? <laughs> wow. That is, uh, that's a great question. I've gotten this question before and it's always, <laughs> it's always just perplexed me because there's there are so many things in MLS that are that are great and that are wonderful and there's a lot that that could be fixed and I I don't know if there's just one thing that I would do Mm -hmm. you know I I think every person always like well what about charter flights Mm -hmm. that's always the one that 
you could probably flick your flick your fingers and snap your fingers and make it happen pretty quickly. Not at a not at a small expense by any means, but that would probably be the one most realistic thing that you could have done more so than changing the calendar or calendar or not playing on turf or mm-hmm. yeah that would probably be the biggest one and i think i do think the actually the player movement one i would change probably that would be the one is mm-hmm. uh have a system that's more open to player movement and contracts that are less power focused in on the team side of things than in mm-hmm. the player side of things okay makes sense Bringing it back to this weekend as we finish up here, and I appreciate you taking this much time. If you guys are going to win this trophy at home in front of a sold-out stadium, what are going to be the key factors in the game? For us, I think we need to be defensively sound. The Montreal series was one in which, for whatever reason, the way that they play, it caused a really tough matchup for us. Um, I didn't necessarily feel that they were a lot better than us, but they scored, you know, five goals in two games, and and that's too much if if we want to win an MLS Cup. So we need to be defensively sound. It's probably predictable for a goalkeeper to say, mm-hmm. um, but I I truly believe we have the ability to score goals and score a fair amount of them. But it gets very tough if you go down goals and and teams are able to get lots of guys behind the ball. So. I think for us, we need to keep a clean sheet and we'll have a really good chance to win. Well, if you have the name Clint in American soccer as your first name, that usually means good things, whether you're Clint Dempsey, Clint Mathis, or Clint Irwin, who you're starting to stand out like those guys have stood out over the years. Good luck this week, and thanks for joining me. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for having me on again, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Clint Irwin as well as everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Thanks also to our sponsor, Mac Weldon. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with Bruce Arena, Juan Carlos Osorio, David Villa, and Gary Lineker. You can subscribe to and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.